Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org and please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. All right, so we are Lesson 49 the chronological gospels. Last time we were here, it was before uh, Palm Sunday, before Easter. So it's been a, f- a few weeks since we've been in our chronological gospel study. And we find ourselves now in the synoptic gospels once again, where we're going to begin today in Luke chapter 9, verses 27 through 36, looking at the transfiguration. And Mark chapter 9, 14 through 29, looking at a father who came to Jesus' disciples that they might heal his son. And they're un, un, being unable to do that. And the Lord happened to come to the rescue. I'm glad we are often unable to accomplish the things that the Lord would have for us. And I have seen often that Jesus comes to the rescue. I'm glad that he's willing to do that for us. And then we're going to see Jesus again telling his disciples privately for a second time that he was heading to Jerusalem, that he was going to suffer, he was going to die, and then rise on the third day. But they just had mixed emotions about it. So we're going to be looking at these. They're all found in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We could just stay in one book and teach all three of these, but I'm going to move us around a little bit. We're going to begin in Luke. We're going to go to Mark and then finish up in Matthew. So we last closed out with Jesus talking about taking up our crosses, and we'd learn four things from Luke 9:23 and this is where we closed out in our last teaching a few weeks ago and Jesus saying then he said to them if anyone desires to come after me let him deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me and so the lord gave us four steps to strengthen our faith faith the first thing we need to do is Whoever desires to come after me, we need to have that desire. It is a desire that God puts in our heart, the Holy Spirit instills in us, but we have to act upon that desire. We secondly need to deny ourselves, which really speaks about living for Christ and not wanting to live for self any longer. I believe that we have a nation that is addicted to serving self today and we got out of the practice of serving others and largely serving God with our lives and it really creates a mess and we see that in our nation today number three we have to take up our crosses and he says daily it's not take up the cross once in a while once a year once every decade but every day We take up our cross. We live for Christ. Number four, we find that um, 
we have to follow Jesus. And so that kind of, it all goes together. We have a desire for the Lord. We deny ourselves. We take up our crosses daily and we follow Jesus. And the Greek word for follow there is a present imperative that could be translated. So let him keep following me. So take up your cross daily and so let him keep following me. This is what we do as believers in Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible tells us that eight days later, so we're close to this event. Eight days later, Jesus taught about taking up our crosses. Three of his disciples had a, the privilege of seeing him in his glorified body. And we're going to see that today in a message that I entitled God's Beloved Son. We're going to see the transfiguration looking at Luke 9 verses 27 through 36. And then we're going to our second point. I titled this help my unbelief. And we're going to look at the story of the father who brought his son to Jesus's disciples was challenged by Jesus himself. And we're going to look at that from Mark 9, verses 14 through 29. And then we're going to finally close out. And, and this is only two verses. But the second time that Jesus told his disciples privately of his forthcoming death and resurrection in Matthew 17, 22 through 23. So we pick up in verses 27 and 28 of the transfiguration Jesus tells the disciples, so this is eight days after Jesus talked about taking up your cross daily and following me. He says, I tell you the truth. There are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. So eight days later, about eight days later, Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they often had the privilege of being near to Jesus when things were going on. Um, they had, they were, along with Andrew, Peter's brother, some of the earliest followers of Jesus, earliest disciples of Jesus. And here we find that he takes these three uh, the theologians have dubbed them the inner circle of Christ because they're all often found near to the Lord. He took them up. Mark tells us in Mark 9, 2, that he took them up on a high mountain. Now, in Israel today, they'll take you to Mount Tabor. That's just a little bit over 1,800 feet. And they say that this is the place of the transfiguration, but it's really not a high mountain. And... If we follow along, even in our text today, we'll see it. He returns to the Galilee. Mount Tabor is in the Galilee. Jesus is not in the Galilee right now. He's north of the Galilee. He's actually up by an area called Caesarea Philippi. That's where we left uh, the teaching three weeks ago before our Easter celebration. And uh, it was there that the Bible tells us that he went up on a high mountain. It doesn't tell us the name of the mountain, but Mount Hermon, which was Caesarea Philippi was at its base, is over 9,000 feet. So that would qualify for me a, a high mountain. Uh, that it's a possibility that 
he was in that area that this is probably the mountain, but it's really not. The location is not as important as what took place on the mountain. First, we find that Jesus went with Peter, James, and John to pray. The purpose of his going was to pray. And this is something that we often learn of Jesus doing, going to solitary places that he might pray. Sometimes he went off alone. This time he took three of his disciples. In Mark 1.35, it says, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. At that time, in Mark 1.35, he was alone when he went off to pray to his father. But he often would do this. He would had a practice of getting away to pray, to spend time with his father. It's a good practice for us as well. Peter, James, and John got to go along this time, and they are often found with Jesus. As I said, they were dubbed the inner circle of Christ. They were the only disciples who were allowed to go with Jesus when Jairus's daughter was sick, and the people said that she had died. And Jesus put the people out, everyone except for mom, dad, the little girl, of course, and Peter, James, and John. They got to see Jesus bring this little girl back to life. They were there also at the transfiguration that we're looking at here, and also with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. All the disciples went to the garden with Jesus, but he took three with him, and they went a little deeper into the garden where Jesus then went off to pray. And he challenged Peter, James, and John to tarry and pray with me. So sometimes, you know, we get off that solitary place to pray with the Lord. Sometimes we need those brothers and sisters to be able to say, tarry and pray with me. You know, I think we get strengthened like we did the week of... Uh, Passion Week there, Easter, Monday through Friday, we gathered for prayer each night. It's healthy for the body of Christ to support one another in prayer, to have those prayer meetings. And I think sometimes in our church we lack prayer, and we lack the effectiveness of prayer. I was talking to my niece, her husband last night, and he was telling of one of the pastors in the area who's now retired, but um, in their church, they had two people, and it must have been a really large church to do this, but they had two people all the time, 24 hours a day, taking shifts, coming into a prayer room that they had in their church, praying for their community. That's a huge commitment. Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa had a, a nightly prayer ministry that every night men from the body would come and pray through the night there while we were there, um, part of that fellowship. They had prayer meeting. It was the men's prayer group, and they prayed through the night. And they, you know, they didn't stay all night all the time, but they would come in through shifts, and there was always prayer going up. I shared, and maybe you've heard this before, uh, the great preacher of old, known as the Prince of Preachers, Spurgeon. Uh, he was back in the day in England, and he he was a contemporary with Moody here in Chicago, but he was the Prince of 
preachers. He had a congregation of 10,000 back in the day when they didn't have microphones. And um, he, he went from, you know, becoming the pastor of his church at 19 years old, which is incredible just to think about. But um, preaching when they had gas for lighting in the sanctuary. And he has a book um, called Lectures to My Students. He had a school of the Bible. And uh, he talked about being in a Sunday evening with the gas lights on, burning, and how people would get a little sleepy because they had all this fire burning. And what happens when you burn fire? Uh, You get carbon monoxide. It's not good for us to be breathing it in. So it's not that Spurgeon was putting people to sleep. They were just getting sleepy because of the scene that they were sitting in. And he talked to the board saying, we need to ventilate this place. And they wouldn't do anything about it. And he said, I'm not saying who. But one night, the upper windows in the sanctuary got broken. And I don't know who did that. He went up there and busted the windows to allow air to get into place. But he went from that to electric They went to electric power, which meant at that time they had their own power station, their own generator to run the power in the church. And they had some people that were visiting the church. And he this was in his lecture to my students as well. And so he uh, he asked the people, do you want to see our powerhouse? And they thought, yeah, I guess if you want to show us your electric station, that's great. We'll go look at your generator. And he took them to the basement of the church below where the pulpit was. And he opened the door and the room was full of people praying and his pulpit above that. And they had continual prayer going up, lifting up Uh, Spurgeon preaching. There were people below him praying. And that was his powerhouse, not the electricity, but the spirit of God. I think the church lacks in prayer today. So it's good to get alone to pray. It's good to have brothers and sisters to come together and pray. So Jesus, his face was altered. They're there on the high mountain as he prayed, verses 29 through 31. The appearance of his face was altered. His robe became white and glistening. Two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which was about to be accomplished at Jerusalem. So metamorpho, or metamorpho, the Greek has a, a double O that they use. We don't use that too often, or if we do, it makes a U sound for us. But for them, you pronounce the two O's. And so metamorpho, uh, it means to change into another form. He was transfigured. He changed into another form. If we combine the three Gospels, we learn that his face was altered. It shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light, white and glistening, uh, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And so the three synoptic Gospels really talking about the brightness, the whiteness It was otherworldly. He said no launderer can get any close to look like what Jesus looked like. And then his face also changed, not just his clothing. 
John would testify of this in John 1.14, saying that we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter also in his last epistle, he only wrote two, but in 2 Peter 1.16, he testified saying, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He also testified, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Perhaps James gives us no such testimony because he was the first of the disciples to suffer martyrdom that we read about in Acts 12 verse 2. But Moses and Elijah were there. They were in glory as well. They appeared, as it says to us, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease. So they also were in their glorified body. They're Moses and Elijah, we have two men, one who tasted death and one who has not yet tasted death. So they really represent uh, a couple of things for us. Moses in the Old Testament represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. Moses represents those who die and go to be with the Lord. He was in a, a form of glory with the Lord at that time. But Elijah was taken up in a fiery chariot without tasting death. And yet he also was in a glorified form here. So we have both the law and the prophet being represented here in this scene, but also we have this sense of today we think about the church, those who have gone to be with the Lord already, but those who, when the Lord comes for his church and we're alive together and we're raptured up with him, that we'll be transformed as well and we'll meet with the Lord in the air with the body of Christ. Second Corinthians 5, 1 and verse 4 says, For we know if this earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. So Elijah, representing not only the prophets, but the portion of the church that will be caught up to be with the Lord, where we'll be transformed if we're living at that time, to be in the glorious image of God. We read about this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, but also in 1 Corinthians 4, 51 and 52, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment and a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will raise, be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. And so we get a sense of that with Moses and Elijah representing those who have gone to be with the Lord, those who will go to be with the Lord when he comes for his church. But here we find that they spoke about his departure, his decease is how it's worded for us in Luke's gospel. They spoke of his decease. That Greek word is exodus. We know exodus, right? 
Uh, that's where we get it from in the Greek. It's a Greek title, not a Hebrew title. But they spoke of his exodus, and they spoke of that which he was about to accomplish. It was an accomplishment. It's a Greek word, play, pleiroo, another double O for us there, pleiroo. Um, they actually have in the Greek language, there's 22 letters in the Greek alphabet, and they have two O sounds, so two O letters. And this one has one of each, the normal O that we look at, and the other one actually looks like a W to us. But it's that which was about to be accomplished. So regarding Jesus' exodus, his pleiroo, it speaks about that which is about to be made complete, that pleiroo can be to render perfect, to bring about a realization. And it was through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that he accomplished salvation through his perfect sacrifice on the cross. And so Peter, I love this about Peter, James, and John, because Peter, James, and John, twice we read about them getting to be near Jesus when Jesus is praying, and each time they're sleeping. I love this because I find that I often might doze off in times of prayer. I think if it was Peter, James, and I was the John in this little circle, that I also would have been uh, sleeping. They were heavy with sleep. And when they had fully awoke, they saw his glory in two men who stood with them. So they dozed off, and then they woke up to this scene of Jesus in his glorified body, of Moses and Elijah being there in their presence and it happened, verse 33, as they were parting from him, Moses and Elijah were leaving. Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. So tabernacle, it's a Greek word that refers to our skin, and so we think of a tent. It can be translated as that as well. Uh, it may be reminiscent of the Shekinah glory uh, that was over the tabernacle of God for the children of Israel in the Old Testament or at the temple and the Shekinah glory cloud. They tabernacled there, but Jesus also had that body that he put on flesh and dwelt among us, that he tabernacled among us. And so I love it that Luke said that Peter not knowing what he was saying. What's that saying? Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. Peter often would speak, I think, not knowing what he was saying. He had to say something. He's, by the way, he's rocky by this time. Jesus had gave him that nickname. He's the rock. And he always had to say something. And yet he spoke not knowing what he was saying. Perhaps he was thinking that this is great. We got Jesus in his glorified body. We'll just set up shop right here. We'll have people come and you know, ascend the high mountain. They'll make their annual pilgrimage here to this high mountain. See Jesus, Moses, and Elijah 
three tabernacles. I mean, this could be great business, Lord. And yet, God interrupted him. In verses 34 through 36, while he was saying this, Peter speaking, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were fearful as they entered the cloud. I, I think I read through this a few times, and then I was reading it yesterday. And, you know, you think of the cloud with Jesus, but they actually entered into the cloud. So they were encompassed with the cloud itself. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Peter, hush up now. Listen to my son. And when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet. And no one told of these days any of these things that they had seen. So at that time, they didn't spread the news. In fact, Mark tells us as Jesus was coming down the high mountain with his disciples, Peter, James, and John, that he commanded them to not tell anyone until after his death, burial, and resurrection from the grave. And to this, they became faithful witnesses. In Acts 2.32, we read of Peter saying that this Jesus God raised up, of which we are all witnesses, in Acts 3.15, Peter and John testified that they had killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised up from the dead, of which we are witnesses, in Acts 5.31 and 32. Uh, again, preaching, Peter, him, God, has exalted to the right hand, the Prince and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sin, and we are his witnesses to these things. They were faithful to be the witnesses that the Lord had called them to be. One day, all believers will see Jesus in his glory. And then they come off the mountain. And here we find that sometimes faith and unbelief can be mingled together as we're doing ministry. So I think this is important. And we'll learn here in this next section the importance also of prayer and fasting. We just came off for our church a week of prayer and fasting. But perhaps we should spend more than just one week doing that or do it more often than once a year because it helps us to better understand the word of God and the work of God in this world. So let's get into the account. We're going to be in Mark's gospel this time, chapter 9, picking up in verse 14. We'll get the context of the passage reading down through verse 20. Not reading the whole thing, but we're going to really set it up in Mark 9, verses 14 through 20. And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them, and the scribes disputing with them immediately when he saw him, when they saw him, so the people saw Jesus, all the people were greatly amazed and running to Jesus greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? What are you guys talking about with my disciples? Then one from the multitude answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And whenever he seizes him, he throws him down, 
He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth. He becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. And Jesus answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought him to Jesus. They brought the son to Jesus. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, fell on the ground and wallowed and foaming at the mouth. So that sets up the scene for us. Jesus is coming down the mountain of transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. As he makes it back to where his disciples were encamped, there's this multitude around them. He saw that scribes were disputing with his disciples, and perhaps Jesus thought, oh, this can't be good. What are you saying to my disciples? And it was the father who spoke up. He said, I brought my son. He has this mute spirit. And when the spirit comes upon him, it seizes him. He falls down to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes with his teeth. His body becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to help, but they could not. So first of all, we notice that Jesus diagnosed the situation. He said, you guys are a faithless generation. The problem was not that they could not cast out this demon. They lacked the faith necessary to cast out the demon. They were a faithless generation. In Mark's gospel, Jesus often rebuked his disciples. Four times he said, oh, you have little faith. And I believe we fall in the same category. And we find this in, uh, let me check this out real quick. I have in my notes that it says Matthew, but I also have that it says Mark. So I believe Matthew is correct and not Mark, but I'm going to make sure that I know what I'm talking about before I run these off real quick. I get down to verse 30. Yes, so it's Matthew, not Mark. So four times in Matthew's gospel, he rebukes them of having little faith in Matthew 6.30, Matthew 8.26, Matthew 13.41, Matthew 16.8. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For those who come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So faith is necessary part of the Christian walk, but we vary in the ability of our faith sometimes, how much faith we have. And sometimes that faith is mingled with doubt. Here's the thing with the disciples at this point, Jesus had already anointed them with the power of the Holy Spirit to cast out demons And here in this situation, they could not. Perhaps they had thought, oh, this is a cinch. We've done this before. Come on, guys. We can take care of this one. And they could not. It's no surprise that Satan would come upon a child, a family member. Satan, the Bible tells us, Jesus said in John 10.10, Speaking of Satan, that the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and destroy. 
But I've come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. And I tell you today that families to this day are being attacked through their children. Why? Because Satan has come that he might still kill and destroy. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 to be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brethren in the world, that we're all going through similar things in this world. We're to resist, but notice Peter said, be steadfast in faith. So the resistance comes through the ability of our faith and our trusting in Jesus. So we pick up the accounts. We've had the scene. Jesus comes down from the mountain and multitudes around his disciples, not in scripture, but in my thoughts. Jesus sees it and says, this can't be good. He asked what was going on. The father admitted to Jesus what was going on, that his disciples could not help and how the spirit overtook his son and so we pick up verses 21 through 27 so he asked the father how long has this been happening to him he said from childhood he often has thrown him both in the fire and into water to destroy him but if you can do anything have compassion on us and help us and jesus said to him If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said in tears, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the people running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, you deaf and dumb spirit, I command you to come out of him and enter him no more. And the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly and came out of him. And he became as one dead so that many said he is dead. And Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Wow. I love this passage. I love the response of the father i believe but help in my unbelief because i have been there a number of times where i've cried out this same thing in fact when we were sitting in the ruins of the synagogue of capernaum many years ago And the Spirit of the Lord spoke to my heart while we were sitting in that place. And the Lord said, the world is telling you that your son is dead. And I tell you, he will live. And that was the second time that the Spirit of the Lord spoke similar words to my heart about my son. I tell you, he will live. And I remember years later praying before my son came back to the faith praying to the Lord. And I said it this way, Lord, I know that you're going to bring him back to you because you promised, but please don't do it or don't wait so long. Don't make him be 40 or 50 years old before it happens. That'd be great. But there's a lot of baggage that comes along with a lifetime of sin. Basically, I was saying to the Lord, sooner is better than later, Lord. But I didn't doubt 
The Lord has spoke a word to me. I didn't doubt the spoken word, but I did wonder when. When are you going to work, Lord? When? Do you know that faith has been translated, pistos in the Greek, been translated 245 times in our Bible, only twice used in the New Old Testament, and the second time that it's found in the Old Testament, it's the word translated as faith. It's in Habakkuk 2.4, and this is a great passage. It finds itself three times in the New Testament, but it comes from Habakkuk 2.4. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. And so Paul in Romans 1.17, he says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11. But no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Hebrews 10.38. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, his soul has no pleasure in him. Or God saying, my soul has no pleasure in him. The just shall live by faith. The just is through faith that we are justified because the just one, Jesus Christ, bore his sins in our behalf, shall live. We live because Jesus, the life giver, gave his life upon the cross. It is by faith because Jesus through our faith in the work that Jesus did, we receive forgiveness of sin and we become part of the family of God. Jesus asked the Father, if you can believe, all things are possible for him who believes. And the Father responded saying, I believe, Lord, help me in my unbelief. And I am so glad that Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, is willing to help in our unbelief it seems to me that as the crowd began to kind of rush over, remember when the, Jesus came into the scene, the spirit came upon the boy, he began to convulse. And Jesus commanded the spirit to come out. And then he convulsed the boy again and he fell down as a dead man. I think it was the spirit's one last attempt, this evil spirit, one last attempt to bring harm to the boy. And yet Jesus was there to lift up the boy, and so he arose. I want us to notice that Jesus lifted him up. The boy became as one dead, and perhaps he was, but Jesus lifted him up. And at that moment that the Lord breathes new life into our hearts, it's a life that only Jesus can give. It's a life that courses through our veins. This life of faith where the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5:17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. And secondly, Jesus commanded that demon to enter him no more. Jesus can keep us from sin. He can also keep sin from plaguing our lives as we continue to draw near to him. In Jude 24 and 25, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you faultless before the throne, or faultless, let me read that, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, 
To God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, now forever and ever. Amen. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, Jesus can keep us from stumbling. So later on that evening, we finish out this passage in verses 28 and 29. When he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we not cast him out? And so he said, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. So what was Jesus speaking about this kind? Perhaps he was speaking about this type of demon. Perhaps there was a demon that they had never faced before, a type of demon that had strength that the disciples, though they had been empowered by the Spirit, though they had cast out demon, they had healed the sick. The Lord had empowered them to preach the Word of God. They had never come into this type of situation before in their life, and spiritually they were unprepared. You faithless generation, they were unprepared for the battle that was set before them. Perhaps they failed because they had not been exercising their faith by practicing the spiritual discipline of prayer and fasting. And I wonder how many battles are lost in the church today because we lack these same spiritual disciplines. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 9, 26 and 27, he said, Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats at the air. I discipline my body, I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself might become disqualified. That spiritual discipline that's necessary in the walk of a believer. This kind and perhaps talking about the type of demon. We know there are different levels. We read about them in Scripture. This kind cannot come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. I am thankful, though, to this day that Jesus is willing to help us in our unbelief. Maybe you have a situation that you're waiting upon the Lord. Maybe you have a situation where... Faith and unbelief are kind of mingled together at this time. Know that Jesus is willing to help in our unbelief. And finally, we go to Matthew's gospel. Chapter 17, only two verses to close out this final point. In verses 22 and 23. Now when they were staying in the Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. But they were exceedingly sorrowful. So this is the second time of three times where Jesus privately told the twelve about his forthcoming death. In Matthew's gospel, we actually find he speaks about his death five times that I could find. But three of these times are recorded in the synoptic gospels. And for Matthew, these three times are found in Matthew 16, 21 through 23. Here in Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23. And also in Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19. First time that Jesus shared of his forthcoming death, Peter 
uh, took, remember this? Peter took Jesus aside. He had just called Peter Rocky. He changed his name, gave him that name, The Rock. And then Jesus foretold of his forthcoming death and his resurrection. And in Matthew, well, this was later on in Matthew 26, 22. He said, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. So Peter was rebuked by the Lord. And here we find that once again, the disciples are filled with sorrow. They're filled with sorrow. They didn't know how to respond, didn't know how to react to what the Lord was telling them. And I think sometimes we get into that place. So we we look around at what's going on in the world. We know what prophecy speaks about in the last days and the second coming and the conditions of our world. We know what the Bible tells about in the time of tribulation, the events of our world, and we actually see it shaping up fairly well. In fact, I don't know if there's any prophecy that yet needs to be fulfilled that would prevent the Lord from coming for his church at any time. And yet, sometimes we look at the conditions of our world and our hearts are filled with sorrow. And like the disciples, we don't always know how we should respond when the world puts challenges before us. Sometimes it seems to compromise or weaken our faith. And when this happens, sometimes sorrow also fills our hearts. But we need to know that we have the proper kind of sorrow. Paul wrote to us in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He said, Godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. I think that's where our world is today. Our world both believers and unbelievers, we find that we have sorrow and yet there is a sorrow in our world today that they just can't comprehend the things that are going on. Their hearts are filled with sorrow, but it's not the proper kind of sorrow. It's not a godly sorrow. It's a sorrow that's leading to death. And yet the Spirit of God can come upon an individual to where it gives us as believers, a proper kind of sorrow, a sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation. And when we have sorrow, for we all will, let's make sure that it's with the godly sorrow. In our text today, God's beloved son, we've seen the transfiguration where Jesus took three of his disciples who, yes, while he was transformed into his glorified body while Moses and Elijah appeared before them they were sleeping they awoke to it suddenly Peter spoke without knowing what he was saying I think we've all been guilty of sleeping while we should be uh, awake we should be in prayer maybe we've been guilty of speaking when we should have remained silent but know this according to the word of God as believers in Jesus Christ we will one day all see Jesus in his glorified body and perhaps we will hear the Lord God himself say behold my son hear him we also learned of a father who was trapped with belief and unbelief he came to the disciples of Jesus he sought their help they were unable to help he then came to Jesus 
And Jesus said, if you can only believe, and the Father said, I believe, but help with my unbelief. I love that. Maybe it's a prayer that we should often have with the Lord. Lord, I believe, but help in my unbelief. Build my faith, strengthen my faith. And I believe that Jesus is willing to help in our unbelief. And this second foretelling of Jesus' death to his disciples, it led to sorrow filling their hearts. They just did not know how to comprehend God's prophetic word at that time. Later, they would understand, but they didn't know at that time. And I think sometimes the church is guilty of a similar thing. Sorrow fills our heart because we just don't know how to properly connect the prophetic word of God to the conditions of our world today. But when sorrow fills our heart, may it be that it would not be a worldly sorrow, but a godly sorrow, a sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to life. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that we too might be the begotten of the father through faith in Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for your word this day spoken to us in this passage, Lord, that has come from three of your gospels, looking at the transfiguration, looking at the father who was filled with both doubt and unbelief, looking at the disciples whose hearts were filled with sorrow. Lord, we learn in each of these situations, really the reaction of the disciples, the followers of Christ to spiritual things. They at times didn't know how to react. And I believe, Lord, we find ourselves in a similar situation today. At times, we just don't know how to act or how to react. Lord Jesus, help us today. If we are crying out today, Lord, I believe, help us in our unbelief, Lord, build our faith. Lord Jesus, if our hearts are filled with sorrow today, Lord, let it be a proper kind of sorrow, a sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to life everlasting. Work in this place this day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand. As we close out in the last song of worship, we have Pastor Kevin down front for those who might have a prayer need and would like prayer, or you can come down and kneel and pray here at the prayer benches in the front of the church. Also, for those who are watching through online, however you might be watching right now or maybe at a later time or listening on the radio, and you have a prayer need, please reach out to us. There's on our webpage a contact, uh, the way that you can reach our church. Let us know that need that we might be praying with you about that situation. We'd love to do that for you as well. Pray that God would bless you and keep you, that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace. God bless you.